Good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Danny, for the introduction earlier. If you weren't here for that or don't know who I am, uh, my name is Rick, and I'm one of the pastors on staff at our Banksville campus. And this morning, uh, I get to spend the next 30 minutes or so uh, unpacking a little bit of God's Word uh, in our time together. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited. Uh, in the first service, I think I got a little bit rambunctious uh, and kept pulling my microphone cord out, so I'm going to try to stay locked down this service, but I make no I make no promises. I'll do the best that I can, but I'm fired up to be up here, and I'm excited to be able to unpack the message that God has for us. Strangely enough, um, because I want to make a couple of disclaimer statements uh, just before we get going and let you know how we got to where we are about to go, okay? So a couple of weeks ago, uh, our senior pastor approached me, Philip, and he said, hey, uh, we, got a, we got a week coming up that I'm going to be out of the pulpit, and you got a couple of options. I said, okay. He said, you can do a standalone message, which if you're not familiar with that terminology, what we normally do here at Cedar Creek is you'll come in, and then for a duration of a set number of weeks, we'll be kind of unpacking a similar topic or thought or idea that kind of has a common thread woven throughout it. And so uh, if we do a standalone, that means it's not part of one of those. It's just you can do whatever you want to do, right? And we're going to take a dark voyage here into a dark place called my mind in just a second. And I'm going to tell you how that, that space works. But before we get there, so that's the first thing. And he says, or you can wrap up our Back to Basics series and teach one of our kind of core beliefs that we've been unpacking together that are kind of pushing us along in the fundamentals of our faith. And so I left out of there with no idea what to do. And my mind, I need you to understand, does not stop. Okay, like some people, my wife is one of them, like gets in the bed at night and just goes to sleep. I don't understand how people do that. There's 15,000 things that you've got to think about and process through every night before you can just turn it down and shut down. So he tells me that we can go and we can do anything that we want to do, do a standalone message. And so my mind walks out of there and immediately is going frantic. I'm like, okay, what can you do? What can you do? What do you want to teach on? What do you think God has for you? What do you think God's been communicating to you? And I'm like, this is why it gets dangerous for me. I've been just in my own kind of personal quiet time as I ride around, listen to a podcast from a pastor that I trust and listen to a good bit uh, on the book of Revelation. All right, and then this little voice comes in the back of my head that's like, Rick, Rick, listen. If you talk really fast and you really boil it down to the main points, you can cover the entire book of Revelation in one Sunday. And I was like, and we'll be here until 9.30. And people don't want to do that. So I was like, okay, we're not going to do that. And so I was like, okay, back to basics. We got these core beliefs. I don't know. I don't know what God, God, what do you want me to teach? Whatever. And so that's kind of swirling around in my mind and I can't get it out of there and I have no idea where I'm going to go. And then our center point director, Jordan, um, because all that we do here during the week, Monday through Thursday, is serious work, calls me back to his office because he needs to show me a skit from Saturday Night Live on the internet. And so I'm like, I'm into it. All right, so I'm coming back there. And I don't know how many of you saw this. It was a skit from just a couple of weeks ago on Saturday Night Live where Saturday Night Live was kind of poking fun of the ESPN show First Take. All right? And so if you don't know the ESPN show First Take, it's kind of staple person is Stephen A. Smith, who's one of the commentators that works for ESPN. And I can say this and it not be hyperbolic. Here's what Stephen A. Smith is. The angriest human being alive. And I have no idea why. 
And so what first take is, it comes on at nine o'clock in the morning and is on for two hours, right? there, first thing in the morning and they have other hosts that come on and they ask meaningless sports debate questions and then scream at one another for the next two hours about who is right and who is wrong. And so that goes on. And I remember watching that and we laughed and then I went back to my office and kind of followed that rabbit hole down and watched the guys on ESPN, Stephen A and them had actually responded uh, to Saturday Night Live and it was funny and that kind of stuff. And then there's another part of my mind I need you to understand. My wife accuses me of being able to get fixated on things. And what I mean by that is if I get something in my mind, a particular thought, a particular task that I need to accomplish, something like that, I cannot remove it, nor can I think about anything else except through the lens of whatever this thing is that's already in my mind. And so I'm sitting there thinking about this skit that Jordan has shown me and and this thought crosses my mind and then stays there for the days that follow. I wonder why they're so mad And then I wonder why we want to watch it. All right? And so then that day, that's been running around in my head the entire day. I get home, and we have one of those little, like, Amazon Fire TV things. But if you accidentally, instead of hit the volume button, hit the channel button on my TV remote, it goes to, like, antenna television. We still still have that because it's free. Okay? And that's how we roll. And so it goes to one of those Mari... Jerry Springer, we're going to find out who the baby's daddy is type shows is on television. And everybody as I get there on the stage is throwing punches at one another, right? And this show's been on for years. And I think it was Jerry Springer and it pans out to the crowd and the whole crowd is chanting. Yeah, see y'all are there. This is church. I need to pray for y'all. All right. All right. And I'm like, this show's been on for years. And that thought runs through my mind again. Why is everybody so mad? Even the people in the crowd that aren't personally vested in anyone on the stage just want to watch these people angry. And then that night before I go to bed, I'm watching SportsCenter or ESPN, and it's a UFC or boxing highlight where they're showing somebody literally getting knocked out over and over and over again in slow motion. People are like, man, this is just unbelievable. Look at this form. I'm like, he punched him in the face, and he lost consciousness. That's what happened, however you want to dress it up. And I'm like, why are we so mad? And why do we eat it up? And then it got even better. Because I went to bed, and and what I try to do at at night, and I shouldn't do this, pray for me, to get my mind to to settle down is I usually just get out Facebook. And I'm not a social media guy. I post very, very little on social media, and I spend very little, I try to spend as little time on it as possible. But I look at it at night, and so I start to scroll down. And this was a couple of weeks ago, and so here's what's on my social media feed. I scroll down. Here's a picture of my babies playing in the snow. Aww. And then another one. Here's a picture of my babies playing in the ice. Aww. Why is the weatherman so dumb? Okay. Why are politicians so dumb? Who's running the CDC? Why are people wearing masks? Why are people not wearing masks? If they quarantine my kid again, I'm going to kill someone. It might be that kid. And then, like you would think, like I've had this thought in my head about anger and why we're processing anger and all of those kind of things. And then I do the unthinkable. And on these comments, I go into the darkest place in America, the comment section, right? And all of the comment sections on everything that anyone posts on social media somehow ends with, if you don't agree with this, I'll kill you. I'm like, we're going to kill them. 
That's where we're at as a people group is we're going to kill them. And then interestingly enough, again, keep in mind, this is all in a 24 hour period going through my mind. My mind bounces back to the fact that I had to teach this morning and then to the core beliefs that are listed on our website. And I think about our, our core belief about man, about humanity. And you'll see why that's interesting because here is our belief about humanity that's listed on our website and it'll be on the screens for you. Man is made in the spiritual image of God Tell that to Facebook. To be like him in character. He is the supreme object of God's creation. Although man has, tr- has a tremendous potential for good, he is marred by an attitude of disobedience toward God called sin. This attitude separates man from God. And the words that stuck out and that I clung to as I was getting ready, to pre- as I was getting prepared for this message and didn't know where I wanted to go, was the tremendous potential for good. And if I can be honest with you, as I look through Facebook and as, I, as we laughingly look at those and we laugh at it because it's truer than we care for, for, it, for ourselves to admit that that's what social media looks like today, I looked at that notion of a tremendous potential for good and went, where is it? How did we get here? And if this is true and we believe it is, it's one of the core faiths of our church, how do we return back to there? How do we fill in this void that exists in humanity. And so then, strangely enough from there, again, this is a journey into my mind, you're getting it, pray for me. The book that pops up in my mind is the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't know why that's funny, here's what Ecclesiastes is. If you're not familiar with the book, I'll give you a little bit of background. It's right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's one of five books that's considered wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Those books are Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. If we break it down a little bit more, uh, Proverbs is just kind of this helpful guide for life, how to be successful, and here's some stuff that you can do to stay inside of God's boundaries for your life that will help you walk that out. Psalms, I love the book of Psalms. Psalms is mostly written by King David, and he writes it from every emotionable space known to man. In like two verses, he will go from, God, I love you for being so near to me, to then going, God, why have you departed from me? Where are you when I need you? And I resonate with that, right? Like I've been there, I can feel that. I can relate to that. And then you get to Song of Songs, which is a book about sexuality and the gift that it is, so be thankful that's not where we're going this morning. That would have been fun as well, but that's not where we're headed this morning. And then there's the two books that are in there as well, Job and Ecclesiastes. And the reason that it's so strange that, I, that this is where my mind went as we considered unpacking the potential for good of humanity is because Job and Ecclesiastes are basically tales of the frailty of life and the uselessness of everything in the earth and the temporary nature of all of it. So that's where my mind went when I went for tremendous potential for good. So the disclaimer that I want to make after unpacking all of that and getting you to pray for me so that you can now understand how my mind works and how we got to where we are, is I promise you this morning we're going to get to good news. Okay? that God's grace is going to show up, that I hope you're going to have an opportunity to interact with it, I hope that you'll wrestle with it and that you will leave here changed and more impacted by God's goodness and grace. But until we get there, it's going to be weighty. It's going to get a little bit difficult before it gets positive, which is the reason that there on your outline, the first point I wanted you to, to jot down before we get started, is that you were created 
to experience joy. Not only did I want you to jot that down first, but if you'll notice as you look at it, it's actually a little bit bolder and in bigger font than everything else on your outline. Because again, I promise you, this is going to get darker before it gets lighter. I'll try to make some jokes so we can at least chuckle a little bit in the middle of it. But I wanted to put this at the top of your outline in big font. So as we go, to prevent you from getting up here and leaving and going, man, that preacher had a bad week. I don't want to be a part of it. You can at least look back up there and be reminded that this is where we're going to get because this is where Jesus wants us to get. But I want us to understand the only right way that we can get there. And the other reason that I wanted this to go first is because it's the first and most important, one of the most important things in our life. Our pursuit of joy motivates, shapes, informs our decisions, and guides every single step that we take in our life. If you don't believe me, 17th century mathematician, theologian, and philosopher Blaise Pascal said it this way, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. So I want us to start here because everything that we do in life we do, because it will, we do because we believe it will lead to a greater satisfaction and a greater fulfillment and a greater joy and a greater happiness being found in our life. Everything, whether we work out or don't work out, eat or don't eat, date, don't date, marry, don't marry, parent, don't parent, all of those decisions at their heart are guided by our quest for joy and satisfaction. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack Ecclesiastes, and I want to read chapter 1, verse 1 as we get started, just to introduce us to who the author is. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament or who we're talking about here, this book is written by Solomon. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament, here's what you know happens in Solomon's life. God grants Solomon one gift. Basically, almost a genie in the bottle type experience. Anything you ask for, I will give you. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And God thinks that this is an incredibly good gift to ask for, and so actually gives him wisdom, wealth, and honor. He gives him all of those on top of it. And then Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is going to go, I took that wisdom, I took that wealth, I took that honor, and I began this experiment in my life to try to determine what life is about. To try to determine where meaning is to be found in life. And it's going to get really, really good as we go to just the next verse. And Solomon kind of wraps up his experiments in the introductory paragraph. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We don't use this word vanity a lot in our current culture, in our current comment. Basically what Solomon is saying is that everything is meaningless. 
but you can't really say meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. So they used vanity there. That's how the English language works. And so he says all of it is meaningless. And so you read that, and that's the introduction to this book. Hey, I'm about to tell you about my entire life where I've been blessed with wisdom and wealth and honor untold that you can't even begin to fathom. But before I tell you about that life, let me lay this out for you. It's all meaningless. I'm like, man, Sally, come here, buddy. Pull it in here. Get a, I know you're having a bad day. We're going to turn it around. It's going to be okay, buddy. Don't give up on it. The most wealthy, powerful, wise man arrives at the spot that everything is meaningless. And there's a couple of options before we go any deeper for how we can respond to this. The first thing that we can do with Solomon's conclusion that he arrives to at the end of his life that we'll profile here in just a minute is that we can ignore it. We can just dismiss this as this is some thousands of year old uh, king that I don't have anything in common with. He doesn't understand what my life's about. I have all of these things that God has blessed me with that I can use that are, that are providing meaning and hope and direction for my life. And so I have these things. And so we can just ignore it and go, ah, that's Old Testament stuff. Jesus fulfilled the law. I'm not going to wrestle with it. The second is you can dismiss it. You can look at it and use the same logic. That's religious talk. That's, you know, maybe that's good for people who want to be monks or who want to go that route with their relationship with Jesus, but I don't see that fitting in my life. And then the next one, which is tempting, I'm going to give you that this one is tempting, okay, is that you can embrace it. And here's how embracing this truth plays out. You're going to get home and you're going to look out there and you're going to realize it's about to warm up and I still haven't cut the grass from the last time that it was warmed up. But you're gonna look at it and go, I'm not cutting that, that's meaningless. Preacher told me today, are you gonna go home and you're gonna go, this is me, I do the laundry at our house. My three-year-old daughter's shirts come through there every like other day. And I'm like, it's meaningless, I'm not gonna do it. She's gonna ruin this stuff again, I'm not doing the laundry, it's all meaningless, it's in the Bible. I'm good with this. I'm not going to clean up the room. We're not doing the dishes. We're not doing any of that. I'm not going to worry about any of it. I'm not going to labor over it. It's all meaningless. We'll move along. So I I like Solomon. Thank you, Solomon. Man, and then we could, all right, let's pray. Guys, don't stress. Go home. It's all meaningless. Let's pray together, okay? And that would be the best message we ever heard, and everybody gets to lunch early. So that's a possibility. But what I want to do is go to an alternate response to it that's going to require us to explore a little bit more of what Solomon does. If you continue reading in chapter 1, and I want to refer you to just a couple of passages in Scripture that I would encourage you to read. One is the entire book of Ecclesiastes that's going to discourage you, but specifically if you read the rest of chapter 1, Solomon is going to lay out his experiment like this. I did all of this and found that not only is it meaningless, but it's a cycle. And so the sun goes up, the sun goes down. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. The wind blows this way, the wind blows that way. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And at the end of it, it's all meaningless. And I'm stuck. That no matter what I do, no matter how much wealth I have, no matter how much wisdom I use, all of it is meaningless. Which is the first big idea I need us to unpack as we explore uh, Solomon's life. Is this one. We are trapped. We are trapped. When I was in middle school and high school, uh, I had a brother who was a year older than I am, uh, and the shows were popular on MTV where they were doing like stunts where people end up getting hurt and like doing dumb stuff with their friends and that kind of stuff, which for a middle school or high school student meant 
that's what we're supposed to do, right? Like we're, they tried it, so we're gonna do that. So we would do things like get on our bicycles and ride them into a brick wall. Not for any reason, just like, hey, film it. But here was the best part. And this is gonna blow some of you, especially center point students' minds in here. In high school, I didn't have a phone. And then when I did get a phone, it didn't have a camera. So we weren't even filming it, all right? There was no social media to post it to. You weren't even allowed to get on Facebook until you were in college. Right? And so we would do all of this kind of stuff. We would ride bikes into brick walls. We would eat stuff that was terrible. And then I'll, I'll never forget one of them. We're standing in the garage, and I don't know where my parents are, which is how a lot of stories seem to start like this uh, and end like this. And we're looking at my mom's treadmill. I'm like, oh, dude, we could do some stunts on here. And the thing is, like, they weren't even stunts. Like, it wasn't even like you were trying to accomplish anything. We're like, what do you want to do? He's like, stand on the sides of it ski style. So I'm up there like this because you do whatever your older brother tells you to do, because why wouldn't you? And so I'm standing like this. He's like, we're going to turn it up as fast as it'll go. And then what you're going to do is jump and twist and try to surf it out. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. So we do it. You don't, and it's like, but don't put that clip on. If you put that clip on when you fall off, it'll turn the trampoline or it'll turn the treadmill off and you can't do that. So don't put the clip on. I'm like, okay. So we don't put it on. It's in the cup holder thing. And so we jump on it. Now here's the issue. In the garage at my parents' house where the treadmill was, the treadmill's about this far from the wall. Okay? So what happens is we turn it on. Philip turns it all the way up and I jump on, turn sideways and it just rockets me into the wall. Now, because there's only this much room, I'm stuck. Right? Like I can't get up, it's pulling skin off of my hands and off of my arms. I'm trying to keep my face off of it. And I'm like, the good news is my older brother's here, which is only good news after it ceases to be funny to him that I'm stuck between the treadmill and the wall. All right, and so when he's done with that, he's like, okay, I'll unplug it, that's a good idea, I'll take it off. And so I looked at that and I thought about that this week and Solomon is going to teach us that many of us exist in our life in that exact same way that we are at best running on the treadmill, but many of us are stuck between the treadmill and being able to do anything. And so again, I want you to see, we're gonna go to Ecclesiastes chapter two if you wanna turn one page, and I want you to see the treadmills that Solomon is going to try to run. And then I wanna battle back against the notion that this is a thousands of year old king's documentary of his life and it doesn't have anything to do with your life because you're going to see that none of this has changed. The first treadmill that Solomon tests for us is accomplishments. He's going to test his accomplishments. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 4, Solomon says this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So I want you to understand what's going on here. And again, I would encourage you to read first Kings because it's going to profile for us in depth what Solomon does. Solomon says, I built me a house. I've passed the apartment stage. I'm out of college. I have a permanent residence. His house takes 14 years to finish, but he doesn't stop there. He finishes his house that takes 14 years and then builds houses for his wives. I said plural because if you're curious, Solomon has 700 wives and builds all of them houses. And then he looks at it and goes, hey, I'm really cool. I'm really glad that you guys have azaleas and you got your hydrangea bushes and you got your yard and it's looking magical. I need to landscape mine. So I planted forests and then dug lakes to water the forests with. I've accomplished all of this. Here is what my work has 
done. Here's what I have to show for it. But that's not the only treadmill he's going to check. The next one is status and comfort. He continues in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. If you don't understand what Solomon is saying, he's saying, I don't do anything for myself. At 10 o'clock in the morning, I wake up, my breakfast is already ready, somebody's already chewed it for me. I get done with that and I go to my first massage of the day. I wrap that up and if I want to, I go to my facial. Then I go play golf, but I don't even have to hit the balls. I just get to ride and walk around and everybody else does and I got professionals, so I get the best scores. And so he's saying status and comfort and stuff I have. More than you could ever imagine. And I love it because it's kind of like, I like like you can see the manhood come out of Solomon a little bit, like in his weird flex here at the end of it. He's like, I got singers, both men and women. What Solomon says there is that he didn't have the Spotify premium package. He didn't pay for Apple Music. If he went downtown or he turned on his radio and heard a band that he liked, he bought the band. You're mine. Come to my house. This is where you play now. That song that I like, play it. That's what I have. That is the stuff that I have. There's status and there's comfort, but he doesn't even stop there. He's going to go even deeper. He's going to go to relationships and popularity. In verse 9, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. It's an interesting way that Solomon basically sums up and he says, I became popular. Now again, if you go to 1 Kings and read what Solomon's doing, he goes night after night after night after night throwing raging parties with thousands of people. And when you think like, hey, no, I know how to do parties. Like I can do parties. That little like bring your own meat thing that we do, Solomon laughs at that. He's killing thousands of cattle to have people over. Tons and tons and tons of wine is there. I'm sure your fraternity was awesome. Solomon laughs at that. He says, I've done all of this. I've chased this. I've gotten popularity. People like me. People are connected to me. People want to be with me. You're unbelievably wealthy. You're unbelievably powerful. You throw unbelievable parties and you invite the entire country. Yes, people like you. But then he goes even farther than that because I already uncovered a little bit of this. Solomon says he has 700 wives and if you back up to verse verse eight, he also says that he has concubines. At any given moment in Solomon's life, he has 1,000 women at his beck and call. 1,000. I have no idea how you do that or to be completely and frankly honest with you, why you would want to. But he's there. There is no type of person that Solomon doesn't have a relationship with. There is no fantasy left uncovered. There is nothing that he wants for, materialistically or in relationships or in people or in anything else. And then maybe the last, the the most heartbreaking treadmill that he's going to tie the bow on all of us with is the last one that I want to unpack this morning, which is pleasure. In verse 10, he says this. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, meaningless, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, I want to pause because I want to prevent us from getting churchy and I want to prevent you from leaving here and going, well, there went the pastor that said we can't do anything fun because fun stuff is bad. No, Solomon actually says the opposite. He says, all of this stuff, I had a good time. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I kept my eyes, I kept myself from no pleasure. And then at the end of it, as he's summarizing his whole experience here, and I can just picture him sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, he looks out at it and goes, even the pleasure was temporary, and because it was temporary and it was here today and gone tomorrow, it was meaningless. So he said, I had fun. I did the stuff. I chased the stuff. And at the end of it, I found that it was meaningless. So the bow that Solomon ties for all of us is that everything in this life is meaningless. But I don't want to end there. Remember, we're going to get to good news. Don't don't give up yet. Because I want to ask the question to us, how will we respond? Because here's here's what I recognize, whether we will openly admit this or whether we would talk about this out front with our friends or whether we would even talk about it with ourselves, we all feel this tension that the stuff that we've pursued in life somehow doesn't satisfy, somehow doesn't deliver to the level that we hoped it would. That it doesn't bring about all that we had hoped that it would. And there's another interesting thing that I wanna unpack about these traps, these treadmills that Solomon says we're stuck on. None of them are innately bad. There's nothing wrong with popularity. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with relationships. None of those things are bad. The thing that makes them really, really good at becoming traps is they're really good at becoming good things that turn into ultimate things. And we spend our entire life chasing them. And here's here's the conviction that I had this week as I prepared this message that God really wrestled with and almost made me change the message, which... Let me know that it's where God wanted me to be. There's type A and type B people in here, but regardless of where you were in that, 10 years ago, you at some level, if you're type A, you may have jotted it down in your planner. You had an idea. If you're type B, you just kind of thought it and then went on about your day. You thought 10 years ago, if I can be X in 10 years, I'll have what I'm looking for. And I don't know what that is. If I can be married, In 10 years, I'll be there. If I can have kids, I'll be there. If I can have this amount in my 401k, I'll be there. If I can be retired, if I can move to the South, welcome, you're welcome here, congratulations. If I can do whatever it is in 10 years, I'll be there. But here's the dangerous thing about somebody who hasn't been around for that long, but has been around long enough to know this. You may be there. You may not be. But even if you are, For many of us, you probably don't even remember where that was 10 years ago because it's been replaced by where you wanna be 10 years from now. And then here's the thing that Solomon's gonna say and that we feel to be true in our life if we'll be honest with one another. In 10 years or less, that 10-year goal will be replaced with something else. And then that one will be replaced and we'll continue in this cycle. And then the unfortunate reality that Solomon lays out for us is at the end of it, one of those 10 years runs out, they paint us like a clown and they put us in the ground. And it's over. So Solomon says, it's meaningless. 
So I just want us to not dismiss it, not embrace it, not go home and not cut your grass. I just want to ask the question, how will we respond? And I want to lay out the two possible responses that I believe all of us are somewhere between. The first one is stay on the treadmill. That we'll continue to do these things. We will chase this cycle. And so many of us are caught here without ever knowing that we're caught here. And here's what I mean. In 2018, I trained for and ran the marathon at Walt Disney World. 10 out of 10, do not recommend. It was horrible. It hurts. It's, I lost toenails. It was a terrible experience. Don't do it, okay? But when I was training and running circles around my neighborhood, the only way that I got through that process was to put music in my earbuds and to take off. And in the moments of running, I could transition into the music and just allow the music to dull the fact that all I'm doing is running circles around my treadmill and my legs are killing me and I'm about to pass out and I've had a cramp in my side since I took nine steps and I don't even know how that's possible. And I would put that music in, and what that music would do is just allow me to shift my focus somewhere else. And the problem for many of us is that the stuff that we chase becomes the music that's in our headphones. That we never realize we're just running, we're just running, we're just chasing, and here's how I know. Very few of us in this room bought the car that we drive right now because our car exploded, okay? Now, it might have broken down, you've been like, well, And here's how it plays out. Like you listen to conversations with people and they're like, listen to me. Dude, I gotta get my oil changed, okay? You seen inflation? Yeah, it's like $56 to get my oil changed right now. I'm just gonna get a new car. I'm not wasting that money. I'm not gonna do it. And they're like, okay, some of you are like, no, we drive cars until the wheels fall off and that's what we do, okay? Maybe you do, and so cars isn't your thing. But also, very few of us in here are wearing the jeans that we're wearing right now because our last pair of jeans disintegrated, right? And that you look down one day and you're like, oh no, I had on jeans and I no longer have on jeans. And then you went and got jeans. No, we look down and we're like, I need to get new jeans. And then we go to the store and pay $90 for jeans that are already partially disintegrated, right? And I, it's me too, I do it too. I'm not like just y'all and then it's me. No, it's, it's all of us. And so we do it with that. We buy out of boredom. We hop relationships, right? Like we go one thing to the next thing to the next thing. I did 10 years in student ministry and that was the thing that I watched. It's like, hey, this is my friend group and then this is my friend group. And then I realized as an adult, it just changes the way that it looks a little bit. And then the heartbreaking part is we'll even do it with churches, I'll find the one that fits me the best that I think is going to satisfy. And the most heartbreaking conversation that I have with people, and I try to be as honest when I can when they come in, they go, hey, we're leaving the church because of X, Y, Z. As I go, hey, I'm praying for you. I love you. I support you finding a church that fills your needs, but I'm very concerned you're not going to because none of them are perfect. And we relationship hop and we, we marry people that we believe are going to provide for us the things that are going to fill the hole inside of us. And then the relationship falls apart because they can't fill it and it's not fair of us to ask them to fill it. Or we save and we save and we save and this is the one that terrifies me because I know it's gonna be me because in case you can't tell from standing up here, listen to me, I can't stop. I can't slow down, it's not a gift of mine is that we save and we save and we save and we save and we retire and then my fear is that I'm gonna sit on my porch and go, what am I supposed to do now? And so we throw the money at it, we do all of those things and then the biggest danger in all of it is staying on this treadmill is that nobody in this room has the resources that Solomon does. 
Solomon can literally collect everything, compile everything, get all of this stuff done, and then at the end of it go, it's all meaningless. My fear is that we'll chase this stuff and stay on this treadmill and keep pursuing it and never get it to the level that Solomon did and somehow keep believing that what we need to fix the problem is more of the stuff that didn't fix the problem. And we stay on that treadmill. John chapter 4 is one of my favorite passages of the entire Bible. It's an encounter that Jesus has. He comes out of a city and is headed, has, goes through Samaria. He doesn't have to. And there um, he encounters a woman at the well. And he sits down with this woman whose life is in shambles, who's in the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't have it together because she would literally get beat up. She was an outcast from the city. And Jesus says, will you, will you get me a cup of water? So she gets her a cup of water and then Jesus starts to talk to her about water. He says, you know, everybody who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. And I can see, like, if it was me, I'd have been like, well, do, you, do you want me to get you another cup, Jesus? You, you won't be thirsty for a little bit longer. And Jesus continues on, and he goes, I'm the water that you're looking for that satisfies. It does away with all of this stuff that has you out here in the middle of the day. And if you continue to read through the book of John and understand Jesus' life, we get to John chapter 10, verse 10, which is my favorite passage in the entire Bible, if you're allowed to say that kind of thing, that Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the second response to understanding all that Solomon lays out there is to recognize that Jesus offers more that Jesus offers more. Listen to me, I wanna stop something before we conclude, and I'm gonna wrap up here in just a minute, that Christianity does all the while, and I've heard this done, and we, we sound a little bit ignorant and cold when we say it, and people will go, you know, you're not gonna be a good father unless you give your life to Jesus. You're not gonna be a good husband unless you give your life to Jesus. And you can, I'm here to tell you, you can absolutely, you can be a good father, you can be a good husband, you can be a good worker, you can be a good whatever it is you want to be and not belong to Jesus. The heartbreaking thing is, apart from Jesus, all you'll ever be is a good whatever you wanna be. And you can work as hard as you want to at that and at the end of it, my fear is that you'll sit back at your life and go, it's meaningless. My wife and I uh, are expecting our second child in two months in April, so just over two months, um, our little boy. And so we did what any reasonable, thoughtful parents would do. Uh, a week ago on Sunday, we went and bought a puppy. Um, y'all, y'all pray for me. You see what I, the kind of stuff I get myself into? And so we went and bought a puppy, and then Monday I had the opportunity, and I was a little bit frustrated, actually, because I had a whole lot to do this week, and I was trying to get ready for Sunday, and I had the opportunity to just stay home with my daughter, Piper. And she was running around, mostly trying to carry, but mostly just kind of strangling the puppy, like holding it by its head like this. I'm like, Piper, she might kill you. Uh, Put her down. And so I get to listen to this. And in that moment, as I'm preparing for this message, and now all these things are rolling in my mind, I realize that the gift that Jesus gives those of us whose hope is in him is that there's something different about those pitter-pattering feet in a living room about looking at the house, about looking at the gifts, about looking at a bank account, about looking at all of those things, that they don't have to end on those things. That Piper and Misty and my puppy and our son who will be here soon are all tremendous gifts from God that are given to me to remind me of God's grace. And so I can look at those things and find happiness in those things and allow that happiness to cause me to roll up and find joy in worshiping the God who's given me those things. And so good things can just be good things. 
They don't have to be ultimate things. And there's freedom in that because then what happens is your bank account doesn't control you. Your bank account is a gift that you can celebrate, that you can walk in, that you can thank God for giving you, but you can look at it and go, it's all God's. I'm gonna use it to be generous, to remind myself of his love for me and then to show the world his love for them. That you can begin to live open-handed because you recognize that these good things were given by God and we don't do anything to keep them. And that the invitation is to allow these good gifts that lead to pleasure, to not end on pleasure and find meaning and eternal satisfaction and an eternal joy. To stop filling an eternal hole with temporary things and begin to allow temporary things to remind you of what could be filling your eternal hole. As we wrap up, one of the frustrating things about a message like this is I didn't, I don't know what the action step is, right? Where do we go with this? All right, let's get out there, find joy, be joyful, do good, and we leave. And so I didn't know where to land, and I I talked with my brother and our worship leader, Ben, and I I talked about this, like, man, I don't know what to do. And so here's what I wanna do, just as we close. On your your tear-off card in front of you, we talk about next steps here as a church. I just wanna challenge you right now. I don't know what your next step is, and I don't know if it's on that card. It may be, it may not be. But I want each of us to seriously consider what does it look like to take one step from temporary to eternal? What does it look like to pursue wholeness? Because it's not gonna happen on accident. Maybe for you, you know that you need to be in a home group. You're tired of hearing people say get in a home group. You're like, I need to do that. I'm gonna do that. I wanna do that. Maybe right now is the time that you go, I'm doing it. Maybe it's you need to actually give your life to the Lord and right there on that box, you need, I need to talk to somebody about Jesus. I need to find something more in this life. Maybe it's for you the first time to pick up that giving ladder and explore what it would mean to look like to get more generous in your life. Or maybe it's for you to help us battle back against the fact that right now in the campus that you're sitting in, in every single age group, including the adult services, we have volunteer spots that aren't filled. And we need people who are willing to connect with the next generation and the current generation and point them towards a hope in Jesus. And so I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's what you wanna talk to one of us about a book. I'd love to do that. I'd love to get you some resources so you can determine what this looks like to take that step, to pursue wholeness, to leave behind pleasure, or at a bare minimum, to allow the pleasure that you find in this life to roll up into joy because of the God who's given it to you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, God, I thank you. I thank you for tough truths. God, but even that the tough truths point us towards your grace. God, that the solution this morning is not try harder, be better, do more. God, the solution this morning is just to shift focus. God, that we are in a room full of people with so many blessings, with so much good. God, and we know that all of that good comes from you. 
I just pray for myself, for everyone in here, that we would examine our hearts, that we, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to determine where good things have become God things, where we've exchanged joy for pleasure. God, may you turn us around to see you. God, I pray in this room for the people who need to make that first step to give their life to you who are tired, who have wrestled with this void in every way that they can imagine. They came in here exhausted and they'll try this religion thing. God, this morning, may they see that this isn't religion at all. This is a call to surrender. It's a call to just see your goodness and tremble before your grace and lay our lives out in front of it. Give each of us the strength to take the next step to be obedient whatever it is you're calling us to.